It's time for a network break. Dig into a virtual donut and join us for our romp through the week's tech news. We're going to talk about a new chip and networking startup and much more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. You can securely enable your remote workforce with Palo Alto Networks Prisma Access. It's cloud-delivered security that protects all user and application traffic while ensuring an exceptional user experience. You can get a virtual test drive at paloaltonetworks.com slash resources slash test dash drives. And we'll tell you more about that in the middle of the show. Check out our newsletter, Human Infrastructure. Every week we send you links to the best tech blogs and industry announcements, plus a regular column about being a human in IT. You can sign up for it for free at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Greg, welcome back. Let's start with a couple of FU that acquired uh, while you were out. Uh, first, mm -hmm. in episode 338, we talked about the potential for counterfeit IT products slipping into the supply chain. A listener directed us to an article in Tom's Hardware that showed that some SSD makers are, quote, changing not only the NAND flash, but also the SSD controller after the original products have been released, end quote, resulting in worse performance. Uh, and this is exactly the sort of thing that I was alluding to when I raised the topic. Uh, supply chain, you know, if you can't, find a product to sell, you start finding any product to sell. Mm -hmm. And this is the sort of thing that ends up happening is SSD makers rummage around in the back of the warehouse, come up with a, you know, they've got a couple of pallet loads of old chips and, you know, bits and pieces and start shipping them into supply chain. Somebody, and this may have been deliberate, but it's much more likely like the purchasing clerk says, hey, can we use these? And the people in charge go, yeah, we can use those. And the product manager goes like, oh, you found some extra parts and blah, blah, blah. So it can be malicious, like let's just ship this and get the money through the door. And it can be just sort of one of those organizational failures. This is the real problem I wanted to raise it with you is that supply chain counterfeits come at all sorts of things. Like one of them is shipping um, older components that have lower performance level. Another one is where people reach into their warehouses and buy seconds and start selling them as firsts. Yep. And companies are so desperate for full product that they'll you know, jump on it and go with it. Um, I was chatting to somebody uh, on the back channel this week. Um, what we're seeing is that, for example, Qualcomm and Wi-Fi chips, Wi-Fi 6 chips, Wi-Fi 6E, the current lead time on those chips is now out to 100 plus weeks. <laughs> so uh, A, Wi-Fi 6 and Wi-Fi 6E probably won't be coming to most vendors in the near future. There's just no chips out there. Um and vendors who are using or were using Qualcomm for the Wi-Fi, which is a very common, it's a standard chip in the same way that Intel and Broadcom is for, you know, switches and, and, and CPUs sort of thing. What you're seeing is that Qualcomm was the dominant Wi-Fi chip maker, and they're now out to a two-year lead time for orders on that product. And so now people are switching over to other brands. In this case, MediaTek is a popular choice. And that also means that they have to rewrite their software to work on the new chipset because it's not API compatible or code compatible, and then they have to do testing. So this whole supply chain has a whole range of ramifications, and that's why I was flagging it to you. This is potentially a time to either move quickly and secure what you need before the supply chain constraints get much worse than they already are, or put your projects on hold until such time as the supply chain starts to get back under control. And or And the other one, of course, is make sure your projects don't have a committed delivery time because you probably won't be able to deliver them on time. Right. So 
that was really the flag. All right. Uh, second, in last week's episode, we discussed a report from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security that says customers using compromised SolarWinds software could have simply mitigated the threat by putting a, in a firewall rule that just prevented outbound communications from the SolarWinds server. Uh, the conversation veered into issues like ransomware and users clicking on links they shouldn't. Uh, this listener wrote in to note that it's not about stupid users. It's about stupid policies. He said users should either be allowed to click on links or not. Uh, and instead of in trying to get the user to use the right discretion, uh, orgs should be putting systems in place to actually mitigate the problem. So I can see the person's point of view, but my response to that is when you go out driving on the road, just remember that you might be in the smartest 20% of people in the world, but that leaves 80% of the other drivers on the highway being much worse drivers than you. And particularly the lowest 20% of the drivers are the ones, right? And you, what do you do in that situation? Do you say like the listener should have discretion to have accidents? Is that what you're saying? The answer is no, we, we take defensive driving seriously to keep ourselves safe. We build roads so that bad drivers don't hurt other people and so on and so forth. So the answer here um, is a couple, of, a couple of things to think about. There's no answer. There is no right answer here. Most companies just let people access the internet and never block outbound. Mostly that was out of laziness and cost. Uh, the ability to block outbound traffic to the internet and run people through a proxy server is expensive and difficult and hard to maintain. But most companies didn't. They just said, like, oh, I'll just let them get access to the internet. You can block access to the internet in the modern era quite simply. Firewall rules, outbound firewall rules. You can use next generation firewalls with threat detection and content scanning. Uh, much simpler than you could 10 years ago. But most companies just simply do not think to filter the outbound access and prevent and, and basically move to a whitelist. The second part about this, of course, is as we move away from centralized networks, people located in office, scanning the content and blocking what they shouldn't be seeing is getting much more difficult or much easier, depending on how you look at it. In one sense, you can start to send it to services, managed cloud scanning services, CASB services out there. There's dozens of them all over the place. Uh-huh. You know, most of our SD-WAN companies now have one. Most firewall companies, Fortinet, Palo Alto, all have a content scanning, you know, Palo Alto Prisma access, Fortinet's got a content scanning service and so on. Um, so really it's about how do you get that scanning and how do you block that so that the user can't make a mistake? And in the same way that if you're on a highway, you need to defend yourself from bad drivers, drunk drivers, drivers driving with drugs, or just people who've got sick. You might be just out of hospital and driving yourself home because you've got no other way. What do you do in those circumstances? The answer is you have to protect them. Yes, you're right. You could theoretically trust people, but you can't. So... I think that's his larger point is that we shouldn't be trusting people. We should be relying on technology to <laughs> prevent the, that low 20% who just are clicking on links out of ignorance uh, that get us into trouble. Well, you've got to remember that most people who go to work hate the place, right? <laughs> oh, sorry, not most. A lot of people who are at work don't like where they work. And they've got very little motivation. If they're being paid a trivial sum of money, what's in it for them to... Right, to put that, to have that extra level of vigilance if they don't really care. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. And in fact, there is a certain group of people for whom getting on the computer and trashing the computer would be a feature because then they could go, you know, then they don't have to work. Okay? <laughs> so don't always assume that. Oh, no, people... ransomware shut down the company. I have to go home. Darn. Ah, oh, you know, I still get paid, right? Well, thank you for writing in. Uh, one more FU. Uh, last week, we were talking about uh, Windows 11 and how Windows is uh, trying to promote their app store. And we sort of chortled about the uh, 
lack of presence that the Windows App Store has in the broader market. But this uh, reader, a listener wrote in to say that, hey, take a look at the Windows Store. It might surprise you. There are some pretty useful things in there, including some Adobe products uh, that you might find uh, Windows Store to be more useful than we had intimated. Yeah, I think Microsoft's commitment to the Windows Store is pretty mixed. They haven't been able to make traction with the developers like in the same way that Apple's App Store has. Right. And say, if you went through our App Store, there's something in it for you. And of course, if they go through the App Store, when Microsoft wants to take a fee for handling the transaction and delivering and all that sort of stuff. And of course, the answer is, if you're a company supplying a product, why wouldn't you just go direct and keep that money for yourself? So I would, the Windows App Store is a, not a very good value proposition for the vendors, the software makers. And for customers um, who are largely ignorant, like the bulk of Windows users are just using Windows because because there's no no question, you know. Um, and what's in it for them? Why would they demand vendors to use the Windows Store? And so there you are at the heart of that situation. Yeah, I will say though, uh, from the story last week, Windows uh, Microsoft is trying to make the uh, its App Store more palatable, particularly to gaming developers, by setting up systems where they're going to take a smaller percentage uh, of in-app purchases than Apple is. So that's that's their model. They're, they're, I think they realized <laughs> that there's some a competitive advantage they can get there. The question yeah, is, I, they have I to think, actually attract so. those developers. Yeah, they have to attract the developers and they also have to get the customers retrained. Microsoft has done a very poor job of asking customers to change and adapt over the years with regards to Windows. They just keep doing the same old, same old, keep back backwards compatibility, even at the price of security and weakness of the product weakness and vulnerability and instability. So how are you going to start doing like Apple does? Apple says, it's a feature to get to the next OS. It's more secure, it's safer. You're going to get more features. You should be upgrade. You want to upgrade. Whereas Microsoft sort of gone like, nah, you know, it's up to you. In any case, uh, if you've got corrections, comments, clarification, we'd love to hear it. Uh, you can hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU and the FU is for follow up. All right, let's dive yes, in. And we always want to get your follow up because we might get it wrong or we might not be able to think of every angle. And this That's helps right. us to make sure keep everybody up to date. So. Yeah, crowdsourcing. All right, let's dive into the news. Chipmaker Marvell has announced its latest data processing unit or DPU, the Octeon 10. A DPUs are designed to accelerate networking security and storage workloads. Other competitors in this DPU space include NVIDIA and the startup Pensando. So data processing units or DPUs or SmartNICs, depending on, on what language and what marketing language you're looking at, varies a fair bit. And the we've talked a lot about the various other DPUs that are out there today. And Marvell is now entering the market with its chipset and its silicon. Uh, the main things that they're talking about here is that they were talking about compute hardware acceleration, data path bandwidth, and industry-leading I.O. using PCIe 5.0, so they're using the higher clock rates of the PCIe band, and DDR5, so much higher bandwidth between the CPU and the NIC so that the memory path is much higher. They're also using a 5-nanometer process, which is somewhat unique. Most of the other vendors uh, haven't been able to get capacity on the 5-nanometer, so Looks like Marvell had some plans going back a few years, got in before the supply chain crunch came in. Uh, and it also uses a bunch of uh, Neoverse N2 ARM cores uh -huh. uh, on there. And um, there's lots of different models and all that sort of thing. So I think the flag here is that the data processing unit market is going to be competitive. There's going to be a lot of different suppliers in here. And uh, I know, Drew, that we've talked before about some of the other software startups like Pensando and Fungible. And I can't help but wonder if those product, those companies are going to be displaced here. Those companies have spent 
a couple of hundred million dollars developing a hardware solution. And now they're going to be competing with Intel, Marvell, Mellanox, NVIDIA, and so forth. Is it going to, is there room in the market for them to exist as well as companies who just want to sell the hardware and you bring your software stack on top? Right. Yes, it's definitely going to be a much more competitive market, but it seems like Marvell is willing to compete. That's right. I just think, look at the DP startup companies. They're subscale. They've got a very early product that has to iterate. They've probably shipped the product. It's incomplete and feature poor. They have to iterate that silicon a few times before they'll catch up with companies like Marvell, who've got way more expertise and way more capability. So let's say, you know, if you're looking at somebody like Pensando, they've, you know, spent 100, 150 million at least on hardware design, getting somebody's DPU. If they were to say, right, we just switch to being a software company on top of DPUs, they've got to wipe that money and that's not going to happen. But then they're subscale. They're not going to be able to compete with Marvell and NVIDIA on producing these at scale because they could do so much more with them. It's going to be an interesting transition to see if those companies survive or whether they just become software startups. So, Yes, or get acquired. I don't think there's anything in value in those companies. I think that those smaller startups of what we will see eventually is like uh, these DPUs will move towards a hard drive type interface. There'll be a standard for using the features. And today they're all got custom APIs and all that sort of stuff. I don't think that's sustainable over the long run. All right, we'll see. And speaking of Pensando, uh, our, our next story is slightly related. A new startup called White Sand has emerged from Stealth. They're launching a new service to provision and monitor multi-vendor campus and branch switches and wireless access points from the cloud. White Sand also offers a network access control or NAC service, which the company touts as being easier to use than like Cisco ICE or Aruba ClearPass. They also offer a cloud-based NetFlow analytics option. Yeah, this is another one, Drew, where I'm a bit more negative than I am positive on this. Uh, they summarize themselves as an intent-based network access control, and they provide a cutting-edge network access control for the cloud using seamless network identity-based access. The challenge here, and, and I'll, I'll be interested in your take, Drew, is campus networking kind of a bit 2020, 2019 now. It's not the thing that it was. And doing network access control, that is enforcing access in a campus switcher at the Wi-Fi, is probably going to be replaced with the software-defined perimeter, when I mean the agents are actually in the machine or by thin client, potentially. I'm not sure that this is necessarily a winning strategy. It feels late to me. What do you think? Uh, what do I think? That's a tough one. You know, I can see the appeal if you are in a, a multi-vendor environment, you've got APs from one company and switches from one or two other companies and you just like an easier way to manage it all. And if you're a very distributed enterprise, a cloud-based service that can do multi-vendor management as opposed to jumping from say, Aruba's console for the APs and Cisco for switches, if I can do it from one place, I think there's an appeal there. Um, I take your point though, that it feels like this is an idea that may have gotten more legs five years ago. Yeah. So, you know, replace your on-prem legacy NAC hardware with white sand and tent-based cloud NAC. That's a perfectly viable business strategy. Like if you've got an on-prem, we know that Cisco's ICE ISE is very hard to upgrade, very hard to own. Replacing it with something hosted in the cloud does make sense, especially if you want to manage a branch network as well. But you could get also that in an SD-WAN these days. An SD branch solution does all of that. And increasingly, SD branch is being replaced with software-defined perimeter. Why not just use agents on the clients? If you're going to have a VPN and you're going to have a branch, why not merge the two together? Another thing that they highlight here is, um, and I think you hauled it out, the company is founded by Praveen Jain, 
Yep. And he's one of the people who was involved in a couple of the, the infamous spin-out, spin-in companies at Cisco. Cisco, yeah. Cisco ACI, Cisco New Over Systems, which later became UCS, and Andiamo, which was um, part of the Nexus family. Now, all of those products were less than excellent, shall we say. They all came, they were spun out, rapidly developed, they were substandard, sub-quality, subpar, overpriced. And in my view, my view, when they came back into Cisco, they didn't work, hard to support. They took three to five years of rewriting and redevelopment before they stabilized. I would not regard that as something to brag about. Mm-hmm. Although they are bragging about it. Yeah, well, I'm sure they are because there are a lot of people who think like, wow, this guy managed to suck a Cisco into paying them billions of dollars for taking Cisco product, putting it into a startup for nine months or 18 months and then spinning it back in. But as a customer who bought those products, that that is not something I want to be associated with. I want something that is stable, reliable, feature, comp- does what it wants. I don't want a Cisco ACI, which was incomplete and uh, um, and not operational when it first came back into Cisco, as so many people can tell you. Yeah. And I wonder if the strategy here is different because they are going for that multi-vendor networking mm-hmm. monitoring play, networking provision and monitoring play, which means it may not be intended for Cisco to buy. Yeah, I think... This is not intended. I don't think this company's set up to be sold to anybody. This feels runnable in the sense that they've got a cloud-based NAC that can run anywhere, but it doesn't feel ambitious. They've got the monitoring and the visibility, but of course, once you've got a cloud platform and you're extracting data from the network, pretty, pretty normal for most of these vendors to add monitoring and visibility onto the side. But is the network access control market viable at the same time as we're seeing SD-WAN, SD-Branch, software-defined perimeter, SASE. You know, we've done so many podcasts with Fortinet, Palo Alto, Networks, um, all of the SD-WAN players across their markets. Would you not rather see it come as part of that? Well, I would say that NAC is not the only thing that White Sand is doing. Again, it's multi-vendor campus and branch device monitoring, your switches, your APs, uh, in addition to that NetFlow analytics piece. And I assume they're going to be adding other things they mentioned in the briefing I got that they are developing specifically, as you mentioned, a client agent so that they can do even more in terms of posture analysis, like is the AV updated and so on, uh, in terms of allowing that device on the network. So they've got some ambitions beyond just NAC. Uh, this is a bigger play. To me, it's essentially the Meraki model, cloud-based, make it easier to use, but do it across multiple platforms instead of just one vendor's platform. Yeah, I, I can get that. I mean, it's definitely a market for this, but it doesn't feel future orientated. It sort of feels like if you've got this particular problem, here's something, you know, if you've got a knack problem, we can help you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And as you, and as you highlighted the, uh, the multi-vendor nature of it may actually be quite a feature if they've got the ability to support many vendors as they claim. And I would question that because testing multiple vendors and maintaining multi-vendor uh, product support is, requires a, f- a fairly substantial engineering organization and a lab environment that can do that. Um, plenty of plenty of questions here and on the execution, to my mind. Definitely lots of questions. They say they can provision and monitor switches and APs from Cisco, Meraki, Juniper, Aruba, and HPE. So that's a big list. Uh, and the way they're doing it, essentially, they will either open up an IPsec tunnel uh, to your firewall and then essentially log into each device individually and you can manage it through their console via the CLI or they'll put a VM on premises to open up that tunnel. That's also mm-hmm. how they're getting SNMP data, uh, clients attaching to the network data and NetFlow back to their service. And of course, all the incumbent vendors have got their own version of this. 
They've got their own monitoring and analysis tools like Juniper has Mist, of course, right? Right. Juniper's got Mist. Uh, Aruba has Aruba Central. Um, but mm. I think White Sand would say yes, but you have to use each of theirs to do it. Well, when you, we give you one place to do a variety of things, including mm. monitoring, provisioning, NAC, NetFlow, et cetera. So I, I, under, I understand their proposition. I agree that execution is going to be tricky. Um, but if you, like I said, if you're a multi-vendor environment, you're highly distributed, lots of branches, maybe multiple mm -hmm. sort of small campuses, the cloud-based aspect of it makes sense to me. The question is, can they pull off the, the management and provisioning well? Yeah, like I said, definitely a product, definitely a market, plenty lots of questions around execution and lots of questions as to whether the market is, is large enough to support the company. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm somewhere in the middle on all of those things. Yes. And just to wrap this up, I had mentioned Pensando earlier. Uh, Praveen Jain, who's founding White Sand, was also a member, a uh, founder of Pensando, but has left the company to launch White Sand, apparently. Yeah. And as I said, not necessarily a feature. <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> but it is very useful because a lot of those people know people. They have customers from those previous relationships. Yes. And they can go and bang on their doors and get sales because they can go, oh, you remember me from when I did this right. from my failed ACI deployment? I've got a better product this time around. Yeah. <laughs> I did it right this time. <laughs> I did it right this time. No, I definitely did it better. Sixth <laughs> time a charm. We'll see. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, I think, yeah, we'll keep an eye on White Sand, and uh, but the link in the show notes if you want to go check it out for yourself. Uh, we'll move on. Forward Networks, they've added security context to their network verification software. If you're not familiar with Forward, they capture state and configuration information from your switches, routers, APs, and firewalls, and essentially build a digital twin of the network and you're supposed to use this digital twin to see how traffic moves through the network you can test configuration changes and ensure that how you've configured the network actually meets the intended state of the network uh, now they're adding security assurance capabilities so there's a blast radius feature you can see what systems a compromised host could reach there's the ability to check your firewall zones for full partial or no connectivity and you can map cve vulnerabilities to network devices and share that information with security and networking teams from one console Feels overdue. This feels like it's the organic development of their product. In the marketing blurb, they say, we gave our employees one week to do some, anything that they wanted to do, and this is what they came up with. That feels uh, somewhat of a story, uh, telling a good story. Um, but the answer is, of course, that Forward Networks has managed to build a model. It can take a copy, of, a copy of the operational state of the network, model it effectively, and then use mathematics to be able to analyze what is actually happening in the network. And I kind of wonder why the security aspect is now coming very late into the cycle. Um, maybe it was very difficult or very challenging, but when you actually go in and read the post, it actually makes sense. They're talking about things like blast radiuses, like where if this security and identifying security zone. So they're saying, I can see that this firewall and this firewall, so that must be a security zone. So I can extrapolate that. And then I can present a GUI to the security people and say, here are the zones and here's the rules associated with those security zones. And the thing that I thought would be very useful here is that you could give read only access to the security team so that they could see what was actually configured in the network and see what the security context looks like without having to give them access to the firewalls and the switches and the routers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one use case that jumped to my mind is PCI compliance, where you're trying to segment off anything that touches credit card data. Uh, mm. And you could use something like this uh, firewall zone checking to make sure that's actually happening. Yeah, sit down, do an analysis and say like, well, here's all the things in, you know, that we've got a PCI tag on. Let's check the connectivity to all of those. Oh, look, there's this thing's got connectivity to it. Why? How has that happened? Yeah. And that's actually coming from the network, the live network configurations. Yeah. So I agree that this is a sort of a logical extension of what 
forward can do. And I do wonder why it took them that long. I, maybe just being a startup, they've had a lot on their plate uh, and there's a lot of complicated math behind the modeling. So maybe <laughs> getting it all to work uh, took and more the, time. The, the blog post, the blog post called out and said, why should, why would a networking company expand into the security space? And I'm sort of going like, duh, look around. <laughs> <laughs> that question was asked like 30 years ago. <laughs> The answer is, of course, all networking companies are security companies at some level. It's just a matter of how. Yes. And uh, so I was kind of a bit baffled by that. I was thinking, like, do you not notice that every single networking company is also a firewall company, you know, in 2021? Right. And, you know, what used to be a routed WAN is now SASE. Like, hello. Anyway. Yeah. So I think part of that is that, you know, we've seen the hype around intent-based networking, which is sort of the market where forward came into kind of cool off. Uh, and now they're positioning this as part of a zero trust architecture. Um, mm -hmm. That feels like kind of a messaging pivot to me. And I suspect it's because their investors are looking to shine up forward, um, seeing what's happened to other IBM players in the network. Veriflow, their direct competitor, got acquired by VMware. Appster mm -hmm. got picked up by Juniper and Anuda Networks also has a strong partnership with Juniper leaving forward sort of like, what about us? So this is... I mean, all networking companies are security companies at this particular point. It's the fashion. Yep. There's very, very few networking companies out there that don't have a security product, you know, a substantial security presence, whether it's NetFlow analysis, whether it's firewalls, threat threat detection and inspection, they all can just go and buy a real-time feed from a third party, add it to a firewall, and you've got a next generation firewall, you know doesn't take much in 2021 to do any of those things. And so they're all doing it. Why wouldn't you? Absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, it's a logical extension of what forward can do. Hmm. Uh, links in the show notes. If you want to find out more, we'll take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. As we continue to confront the pandemic, most businesses know that remote or flexible work environments are going to be the new normal, but moving to that remote workforce puts lots of pressure on legacy networking and security infrastructures and organizations are trying to figure out the limits of their architectures in many areas like scalability, security, and performance. Palo Alto Networks wants to help you scale your remote workforces without compromise. You can securely enable remote workforce with Palo Alto Networks cloud-delivered security. It's Prisma Access consolidates multiple point products into one converged cloud-delivered platform, protecting all users and application traffic with complete security, ensuring exceptional user experience. You can get an ultimate test drive today at paloaltonetworks.com slash resources slash test dash drives. That's paloaltonetworks.com slash resources slash test dash drives. Go try it for yourself. We thank Palo Alto for being a sponsor. Back to the news. In kind of a comedy of errors, it's not really funny. Security researchers shared exploit code for a Microsoft vulnerability that they thought was patched, turned out not to be patched. Uh, the exploit code is targeting a vulnerability in a Windows print spooler service that allows a rogue or compromised user to get admin privileges on Active Directory domain controllers. Well, you know, and that's the prize. If you can get onto the AD and compromise that, then you can pivot and take over just about anything because you yes. can create accounts and, and various levels. This is what I mean about Windows. I was a little critical of Windows at the top of the show, and this is classically the problem, is that Microsoft works so hard to maintain backward compatibility, it leaves vulnerabilities open. And this is one of the areas where Microsoft needs to, I think, take a grip and say, history was history. The idea of an open operating system where you can do anything also creates security weaknesses that leaves. Remember what I said about the, you know, the bell curve? Uh -huh. We have to protect the bottom 50% of the dumb people from themselves. Right. And that means we have to put seatbelts in cars. And it also means we have to have operating systems which restrict what you can and can't do with them. Uh, and if you really, really want to have an unlimited operating system, well, there's always Linux, you know.
Yes, I agreed that Microsoft always needs to be responsible for better security. And they were essentially doing what they should do by announcing vulnerabilities, releasing patches. I think the security researchers also have a little bit to blame by releasing exploit code because they misunderstood the latest patch that Microsoft released wasn't for this particular vulnerability. Uh, they did pull the exploit code as soon as they realized the mistake they'd made, but by then it was too late. It had already been copied and shared around. Uh, mm. So a couple of unforced errors here. But these things shouldn't happen in 2021, you know. What do you mean? It's software vulnerabilities? <laughs> well, this <laughs> sort of stuff, like printing vulnerabilities, that code should have been fixed 20 years ago, not probably still coming up with basic vulnerabilities. Right, a print spooling service, yes, should have been fixed a yeah, long time no. ago. Yeah. But this is the world we live in. Uh, moving on, Versa Networks, they offer SD-WAN and SASE services. They've announced a Series D funding round of $84 million. The company has raised $196 million to date. Versus says it's going to spend that investment on sales and marketing around SASE. They cite Gartner Research predicting over a 40% growth rate for the next three years for the SASE market. Uh, and it's predicted to become an $11 billion market. Versa wants a chunk of that. And they're going to take this money and let you know that they've got SASE. Uh, this is a turnaround. I think Versa Network specializes in what I call uh, legacy SD-WAN, that is SD-WAN and some SASE. So you basically add some firewalls or some uh, VPN capabilities or you add whatever on top of it and you build it out as a solution, but it does not substantially move the needle forward. Like when we talk about Palo Alto with its uh, Prisma SD-WAN, they have a bunch of cloud services associated with it. This is very much a, here's a box, on the box, we put this hardware. Um, they're one of the unique SD-WAN companies in that they actually make ADSL modules for their particular hardware platform. So this is a very traditional router replacement SD-WAN kind of technology with sort of just small steps towards acknowledging that the cloud exists. You have to basically go and take a, 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 a VM version of the Versa SD-WAN software and deploy it in the cloud. And that's kind of where SD-WAN was about five years ago. But Versa Networks has basically spent most of its time selling this product to telcos and telcos have been using it as a router replacement. So a very traditional sort of VIP-Teller alternative um, approach. And they really haven't beefed up their marketing presence because they've been relying on other people to sell it for them. That's always a, a failing strategy in the long term. And I think I said something to that extent three or four years ago is that Versa will happen in the back room and then eventually they'll realize they need to come and generate demand directly from the market. So my reading from this is that they've taken uh, 86, 84 million in funding from a late round VC investment companies. RPS Ventures is the lead investor here. It's a late stage venture capital firm that is collaborative between Blue Pill Capital, SoftBank Group and Jerry Yang. So they are speculative investors. They're not um, targeted or deep investors. They've got a lot of money to throw around and Versa is the beneficiary this time around. But I remain less convinced that Versa's got a innovative or a leading strategy here. I think something's missing. I think you're right that they spent a lot of time focusing on managed service providers, telcos, um, and you know there was a reason for that because they were designed that way, but now they need to get out into the broader enterprise market where I think there's more money. Uh, mm. Also, almost $200 million in VC investment, that's a lot to pay back. They've got to show something for it. Uh, so, mm. uh, And SASE is the new hotness, and whether or not they've got a robust SASE platform, they're going to crow about it. Well, you know, as we've said before, there's still less than 10% of enterprises have deployed SD-WAN or SASE. 
Right. So there is a market there. It is. Um, Versa has been relying on companies like Riverbed and Comcast and Verizon and BT to sell its products through their enterprise business units. But my sense of it is, is that customers would sort of, you know, these, these people would turn up and say, uh, except for Riverbed, of course, but, you know, if you're Comcast and you turn up and say, well, we've got an SD-WAN strategy that we've built, people are going to say, well, who is it? They're going to say, I just built on Versa. And the customer's going to look at them and go like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? So yes. <laughs> uh, I think the days of being customers blindly accepting Comcast. Now, that's not to say everybody won't, but I think the ma- majority of customers will be interested to know what is the the brand behind this top product that's being brought to them. And this is what Versa has to do. It's also a good idea. You know, Versa Networks was leaning into the, we don't want to have a sales team type of thing. It's a lot of money to put salespeople on the ground and yep. generating sales and building up teams around the world. It's awfully annoying as well. And uh, guess what? Didn't work. Not a surprise. Yeah. All right. We're going to finish with a data point in the debate over hybrid work. The San Francisco news site SFGate reported that just 99 employees showed up to VMware's headquarters on the first day the company allowed people back in. That's out of a headquarters staff of 5,000 on a campus that can fit up to about 8,000 people. So a clear sign that folks are not quite ready to get back into the office. Lovely piece of journalism, this. And uh, the person from VMware was saying, oh, yeah, no, definitely we expected that. I'm going like, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> when you've got a site that houses as many as 8,000 workers and the VMware headquarters has got free food and snacks and all the good things that you read about, right? Not as not as good as some companies, but it's pretty generous. You know, canteens, cheap food, all that sort of stuff. Right, free coffee, and, free lunch, all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, and only 100 people out of, say, you know, five to 7,000 turned up. It's sort of, there's a bit of a message in there. I've collected a bunch of links uh, as well is that uh, CNBC in America is also talking about more people intend to quit than to return to the office. And they called it the great resignation. They're suggesting that most people are actually planning. <laughs> Mainstream media has always got to beef it up somehow. It's got to be like the great something. You yes. Know, like, yes. Or the big move. And so they're saying like, uh, People who are a marketing consultant, they start, you know, do these things. They're going like, now they want me to start traveling again and visiting car dealerships. I don't want to do that at all. And I'm like, okay, I get that. You know, I think what we're seeing here is that a lot of people and not just 10%, 20%, I think like half the people are looking at their jobs and going like, is this the job that I really want? And is this a time to reevaluate? Maybe a lot of people found out during the break that commuting two and a half hours to work felt like a good idea when I was doing it. But when you stop for a year, you go like, I actually don't want to be commuting two and a half hours. Right. If I didn't have to commute, I could, you know, there's so many different reasons here. And so uh, there's another link to a McKinsey report, which is suggesting that similar sorts of things that the future of return to work is very, very unclear. Some people are going to go back. Some people aren't. I think the main thing to take away from this is that if you try and force people to go back, companies may find that they just don't have any employees or <laughs> well, they have a lot less employees and they'll be desperately trying to rehire to cover them. Supporting remote work will be the new foosball table uh, perk. I think so. Yes. And I think it'll be like in the, in the early days, it, it'll be three days a week remote for people who can work remote. Not everybody uh-huh. can, but most right. can. And one or two days a week in the office. And then over time that will adapt as people adapt. So the second data point, another data point in there is uh, Slack this week announced new tools. And they're doing a couple of interesting things. One of them is creating flexible alternatives to meetings. So instead of scheduling a meeting and having a chat, maybe you could message somebody and then say, let's just get together for a huddle. And you can click a button and set up a meeting just instantly as a new feature that they've got. 
And another one that they've done is they're also going to set it up so that uh, Slack can do audio and video recording. So you could, uh, let's say you're working in a time zone. So let's say your company's in the US, your manager's in the US, but you're in Australia. At the end of the day, you can record a short video message and say, hi, boss, just want to let you know this is what I worked on today. This is where I'm having some problems. This is what's going on. And then you click that. And then in the morning when the boss comes to work, the message pops up and he gets that report. He or she gets that report. Those are the sorts of changes to work and the way that managers work and the way that you work that have to come out, I think. And that's what we're not seeing yet is those sorts of adaptions in the tool and adaptions from a people to transform the way they work. Yeah, just one more data point on that SFGate story about VMware. The uh, the new site reports an internal employee survey that shows that a third of VMware employees want to work home work from home permanently, and nearly two thirds want hybrid flexibility. So the demand is definitely there for rethinking how folks uh, do their work. We've also seen studies that show that productivity did not decline while folks were working from home, which a lot of managers feared uh, that was not the case. Hmm. So you know, if you're a manager and you're uh, demanding everybody come back to the office because that's the way you like to work. You might find yourself on the losing side of that debate, right? The downside I see, you know, my takeaway is that I think we're going to get a lot of uh, bogus sort of AI-driven analytics, quote-unquote analytics tools that are really just like surveillance and tracking tools, how much time you're in the chair, how many keystrokes you're hitting on the keyboard, where your eyes are on a Zoom call, that kind of horrible BS uh, because you know, these sort of hierarchical top-down management models where I have to see what you're doing all the time is the only way I can measure your performance uh, just because you're from, th that model won't go away. It'll just <laughs> change how they monitor you. Yeah, that's right. Instead of seeing you at your desk and getting an idea on how you're working, they're going to put tools in place that try and echo that. Uh, if your boss wants to do that to you, you might want to think very hard about, you know, exactly. <laughs> just quietly saying thanks very much and and look for that look for a job at a place which actually respects you as a professional. And if you don't respect yourself as a professional, well, then by all means, stay. That's right. All right. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of links to this uh, topic in the show notes if you want to go check it out. That does wrap up our show. Greg, where can folks find you online if they want to get more from you? Uh, I am tweeting. I am being a little bit quiet. I've been away ill for a couple of weeks. I was hospitalized for a short period of time. Uh, so I've been a little bit quiet for the last 10 days and I will we'll have another couple of another week of relative silence but uh yeah follow me in all of our podcasts on the packet pushes network and i'm on twitter at drew underscore cm if you want to see what i'm tweeting or you can find my blogs on packetpusher.net thanks for listening if you like this show you can find it and many more fine free technical podcasts on our site that's packetpushers.net have a good day